Well, glad, yeah, glad you're here. We're going to finish First uh, Peter today, Lord willing, and uh, we're going to look at First Peter chapter five, eight through fourteen. Uh, the uh, the last imperative that we learned. I hope you remember memorize the scripture. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you in due season. Cast all your cares upon Him, for He careth for you. And that we talked about that attitude is going to get us through all seven of the uh, foundational imperatives, and certainly this attitude of humility is going to be the attitude necessary for us to. Uh, to uh, do the next subject, which is resisting the devil. We must in, uh, understand uh, and we must be humble. And we must be dependent upon God and his good graces so that we can resist the devil. And we're going to talk about that today. So as we uh, look at this final text, uh, look at chapter 5, 1 Peter Look at verse eight, and we'll read the first these few verses, and we're gonna we're gonna look about the devil a bit, uh, the biblical reality of him, some of his names. We're gonna look at uh, what his attitude toward us is, what our attitude toward him should be, and we're gonna talk about resisting him, and then lastly, we're gonna be encouraged by God's grace as he is going to. Uh, uh, preserve us, and we're going to be able to stand by his grace. So let's look at this. As we finish this great book, First uh, Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silas, our faithful brother, as I considered him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. So be it. Amen. So as we look at this final few verses in this book, this is going to be complementary to what we've looked at for the last 18 lessons. And this is going to be that God desires us to grow in grace uh, for obedience through suffering for his glory as he, as he is preparing us, as he is conforming us to his image, and he is transforming us, transforming us by his word. And he chooses to do that in, in many ways, but one of the ways, of course, is through the suffering. So one thing I want to look at today is the, the biblical reality of the devil. I don't know if you can read the board. I've actually been complimented by my writing today, which is very encouraging. It's the first time ever. But, hey, if you can read it, if you're on Zoom, uh, Roman numeral number one, the biblical reality of the devil. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the devil. We know he is real. We know that uh, we have all been influenced by his instigation of sin in this, on this planet from the beginning of creation. What we know about the devil is that, A, he is a created being. And so let's look at one of the texts that help us with this. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28 uh, uh, look at Ezekiel 28. Let's look at the uh, uh, 
some facts about Satan that's going to help us to resist him, to understand him, and have a proper perspective of him. Uh, when we get into this uh, later, we're going to understand, you know, my favorite word is, is balance, as many of you who know me. Uh, we need to have a proper perspective of, of, the, of Satan, our enemy. Uh, we need to have a, the right viewpoint of him. We're not to maximize, maximize his power and authority, nor are we to minimize it. So we want to have a good balance in what we consider about uh, Satan. So let's look at Ezekiel 28. Uh, the first ten verses of this chapter are talking about the ruler of Tyre. Tyre is a literal nation. Uh, this king is uh, is uh, is uh, Ethelbal the third, and he is a man. In, in verse one, the scripture says he's a prince of Tyre. That word prince is translated ruler, and means he's literally the man at the top. So we're talking about the ruler of a literal nation named Tyre, and he's uh, admonished for his pride his arrogance, and God is about to bring judgment on him. And then we see in verse 11, there's another character, and this character is not identified as the ruler of Tyre. He's represented as the king of Tyre. So this uh, next few verses, this is going to be a description of the the head of the uh, ruler of Tyre, who is Satan. He's the king of Tyre. Now, Tyre in the scripture is a metaphor for wickedness. It's a metaphor for nations who are opposed to God. And so we see this figure identified not as the ruler of Tyre, but the king of Tyre. He is the one behind the wickedness of the ruler of Tyre, which is King Ethbal. So we see this. Uh, most scholars I used as reference, uh, Charles Dyer's good commentary from DTS. Terry may even know the guy, but uh, he's an excellent scholar on this. So I looked to him a little for reference. But as we look at verse 11, we see that, that the Holy Spirit is speaking about Satan uh, as, as he's going to be a metaphor for this ruler of Tyre. And, and some of the things that are described here are obviously not about a man, but they are referring to uh, Satan himself. He is a created being. He was, he was, he was an angel. So let's look at verse 11, Ezekiel. Just going to read a few verses here through verse 15 just to give us some understanding of the biblical reality of the devil. He is a created being. Verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were, underline were, if you write in your Bible, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, burr, burl, ox, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So this is the beginning of our understanding of Satan. 
He's a created being. Angels were apparently created before God created the earth. They existed before he created what we know is a known world in six literal days. And so uh, uh, Satan is an angel. Angels were created by God to be his ministering spirits. They serve him. Apparently angels had a free will. And uh, they were able to make choices as moral free is that free agents, and so Satan chose to, uh, uh, in his pride, as we'll talk about in a second, he fell because of his beauty, because he thought he was perfect. He didn't want to submit to God's plan for him, and so he rebelled against God. So we see this about Satan. Just notice some of the description of Satan. Uh, one of the things we see in verse 13, he was in the Garden of Eden. And so we understand that the Satan who had fallen in his pride is now the deceiver. He's now the accuser. He's now the adversary. He's now the uh, diabolos. We'll get into all these things in a minute. So we see him at the Garden of Eden. He's called the serpent. And, and when it says in, in Genesis chapter 3, he's beguiling and he is deceptive. And so he, through his cunning, deceives Eve and questions the authority of God, questions the word of God. This is what Satan has used since the beginning, and he will continue to use because it works, okay? So he brings uh, this concept of deception, distrust of God in his word. So we see that Satan created, he appears in the Garden of Eden. Uh, scripture says that he is a anointed cherub. That's verse 14, cherubs. Uh, as as uh, Charles Dreyer says, uh, cherubs were uh, in the inner circle of angels. They were had the closest access to God. They guarded the holiness of God, if you'll let me say that. And if you want to see a picture of that, uh, just on your own time, look at Ezekiel chapter 10, 1 through 10, Isaiah 6, where cherubim and seraphim are... Uh, 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 involved in the holiness of God and guarding his holiness. And so uh, Satan was a cherub, a guardian angel in the inner circle, close access to God, guarded his holiness, and he had access to God. It says uh, in verse uh, 14, you walk back and forth in the midst of the fiery stone, which is a metaphor for being in the presence of God. And so this is Satan. He was a worship leader. Look at the, look at verse 13. See the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So Satan was created as a worship leader. He had, he had gifted abilities to worship God. That's the phrase. Uh, the workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes. So Satan had all this. Uh, but it says he was perfect in all of his ways in verse 15 until iniquity was found in him. And we know from Scripture that the iniquity was pride. And that is found in 1 Timothy 3.6 as the Apostle Paul describes Satan. Uh, we see him in 1 Timothy 3.6 uh, that Satan was a prideful and uh, it says 3.6, as he's talking about being a qualifications for, uh, for elders, he says in 1 Timothy 3.6, don't be a novice, don't be puffed up, can't be a novice, can't be puffed up with pride, lest you fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Uh, we know that pride is one of the great sins, and the devil was puffed up in his beauty, in his role, 
uh, and uh, of course, under the good providence of God, he fell, and uh, we understand that. So that's the background of Satan. Uh, he, he was wise and beautiful, uh, but now he's a fallen angel, and he is a leader of fallen angels. Scripture says in Revelation that he's taken a third of the angels with him. So we don't know how many that is, but we know he has his own minions, uh, fallen angels who have followed him, and he is their authority. And uh, so that's what we know about Satan's beginning. Any questions about Satan? It's an important doctrine. Uh, but uh, that's what we know about Satan. Some take Isaiah 14, verse thir- uh, 11 through 13 as additional uh, information about Satan, about Lucifer, the fallen of Lucifer, and I'm going to exalt myself to heaven, so I'll let you look at that on your own time. But uh, some would consider that to be another another uh, verses, uh, verbiage about uh, Satan. Any questions about Satan? He's a created being. So we're to resist him. Biblical names for Satan in the text, if you look back at First uh, Peter 5.8, we see uh, several descriptions of him. And I just want you to understand what these are as we get into this. First uh, Peter 5.8, uh, he's called the adversary. He's called the devil. The word devil is diabolos. Uh, and this is diabolos is generally in the context of an accuser of the brethren. Uh, we know that he does this. We know from the book of Job that Satan is wandering to and fro upon the earth. He's in God's presence and he accuses Job of uh, worshiping God because he's being blessed by God. And uh, he accuses God of uh, supernaturally protecting Job, and he accuses God of malfeasance. So we know that he's uh, very brave. He's an accuser of the brethren. That's the word diabolos, Satan. It's equivalent to the word uh, uh, Satan in Hebrew. It means a slanderer. Uh, what does a slanderer do? This is Satan. What does a slanderer do? Tells lies. Scripture John eight forty four that that Satan is the father of lies. So he's the instigator of lies. Every lie that's been told comes from the the mind of Satan. Uh, so the word uh, when he is a slander, I love the definition. He knowingly and he deliberately advances false charges against God and His people. His purpose is ruination. He hates. And uh, he will do whatever he has to do to slander us before God. He will slander God himself. So he is uh, uh, the slanderer. He's also our adversary, which literally means he's our enemy. If you ever question who your enemy is, it's Satan. He's out to destroy you. So he's of the devil. He is the slanderer, Satan. He's our adversary. Uh, in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, uh, we see several other w- descriptions of him and who he is. Uh, talk about what he does. Look at uh, Revelation 12, uh, 9. He's called the great dragon. Look at 12, 9. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth and his angels was cast out with him. And so we see he's called the great Satan. He's called the serpent of old, referring, alluding back to Eden days. 
and he's the devil and he is Satan and he is deceptive. He deceives the whole world. If you stay in the Revelation 9-11, he's also called uh, the Apollyon. Uh, that's when uh, this is a reference to the to the demons in the pits of hell, and uh, he is described in 9/11 of the Revelation. Uh, he is called, and they had a king over them, the king, angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in he- Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he's got the name Apollyon. So we understand that's another name for him. Uh, Paul says he is the tempter in First Thessalonians 3:5. John the uh, Apostle says he's the wicked one in 1 John 5.18. John the Apostle says in, in John, which we've studied recently, that he is the ruler of this world. We find that in John 12.31, 14.30, and 16.11. Uh, Paul says he's the God of this age. Paul says he masquerades as an angel of light. Paul says he's a... He's his spiritual host of wickedness, and he's the prince of the darkness of this air. So that's who Satan is. He's our enemy, and he's our adversary. He's a created being who fall through, fell through pride. And Scripture says we are to resist him. So our attitude toward him uh, is must be balanced. Uh, I know some well-meaning Christians, and you probably talk to them, uh, they actually think that this is a uh, – this is a uh, – uh, the empire versus the versus the uh, uh, I mean literally thinks this is a star war and we just don't know who's going to win that they are equal in power and this is just a this is a fight between evil good and evil and it's just debatable who's going to win this fight. Scripture says that God is the only omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign of the universe. Satan is a created being. There is no match. There's no doubt. Christ has already won the victory. As Terry says, it's just a matter of cleanup, right? So there's no, uh, so we don't need to uh, maximize his power and authority. His authority is limited. God controls him. Spurgeon said he's a roaring lion in a chain. He's the devil, but he's God's devil. So God controls and limits Satan. Uh, remember the story of Job. Jo- uh, God limited Satan's ability to attack Job. He says he told him one time you can't kill him, and he told him one time, uh, you know, you can harm him, you can cause disease, but you can't bring him to, to death. So he's just a, he's a limited foe. Uh, so we can't maximize him. We can't live in fear of him. We're just to fear God, but we're never to minimize him either. You know, these two extremes. I know people that that think they can just say, I'll just rebuke the devil, and that's all there is to it. Uh, you know, there have there is no uh, uh, they do not uh, they do not understand his power. They don't understand his his deceptive ability, and so they minimize him. We want to we want to ha- have a healthy balance. We want to not be afraid of him in that realm, understanding that he can't do anything to us apart from the permissive will of God, and he's limited by God. But we also can't have this nonchalant attitude about him. Oh, he's no big deal. We need to be aware of his scheme, Scripture says. We're to be aware of his wiles. We're to be aware of the fiery darts that he sends out. And if I've got time, I may do some uh, what that means as we look at Ephesians 6. But uh, So have a healthy balance of him. Uh, 
Uh, he is powerful. He's deceptive. He's cunning. We cannot resist in our own strength. Scripture never tells us to flee from the devil. Why, Hebert says, why doesn't, he says, we're not told to flee from the devil because that would be a, what do you think the answer to be? That would be a, pardon me? Admission. That's true. Uh, but he says that would be a, that would be a, a futile effort and exercise. You can't flee from him. It tells us to free, flee from evil, and we'll get into all that, but fleeing from the devil, uh, Hybrid says is a futile effort because you can't flee from it. But we can flee from what he sends in our lives. We can flee from sexual immorality. We can flee from lustful youth thoughts, and, and I, we'll get into all this in a minute, but, uh, so we need to be balanced in our thought of him. And so Peter says, uh, and as we look at the text, that we are to have this attitude toward him. We are to be sober and vigilant. The word literally means to be spiritually alert. Vigilant means to be spiritually alert. Uh, it means to be prayerful. It needs to be in the word. Uh, Paul says, and you may want to put your finger on Ephesians 6, uh, when, when Peter says to be uh, sober uh, and vigilant, uh, he means that we need to be spiritually alert. Paul dovetails this as the scripture always is harmonious. Paul says in 6.18, praying always with prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful. Uh, with all perseverance and supplication. So, and this is in the context of, of the whole armor of God and standing against the devil. So, uh, we see that uh, we are to be vigilant. Uh, the word self-control means to be wakefully active, morally and spiritually. And we see the examples of this. Uh, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? When Satan's buffets was the strongest against Christ, he wanted to, uh, he wanted to stop the cross. He wanted to stop Christ's victory over him. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he went to pray, what happened and how does this dovetail with being sober and self-controlled? What did the disciples do? They fell asleep three times. And he said the flesh, he said the, the, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so they were admonished. He said, can't you just pray for me an hour? But we need to be self-controlled. We need to be vigilant. We need to be always continuous in prayer against our enemy and against his wiles, against his schemes. We are to understand he is our enemy and we're to have a balanced view of him. Okay, everybody understand that. Sober, self-controlled, uh, wakefully active, uh, praying. Remember what Jesus said to Peter before he fell and denied him three times. He said, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And after you have turned, then you're going to be useful for my glory. So he tells Peter, Satan is asked to sift him. He's the enemy. He wants to destroy Peter. He wants to destroy his ministry. He wants to destroy anything that, that's attached to God in the name of Christ. And he wants to sift. He's a lion. And so Jesus says, you're going to fall. But afterwards, the purpose of that 
denial is for restoration, is for the edification of my church and the body. So we see our attitudes towards Satan is we need to be vigilant, balanced, uh, without compromise before. Many questions about our attitude towards Satan and who Satan is. Any comments or questions about that? Well, I thought about when you were talking about not, we're not committed to flee from Satan. It reminded me of the verse, submit yourselves, therefore, to this, the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 6. So it's us submitting to God in that. Excellent. We overcome Satan through submission to Christ, through humility to him, right? And that's what I was leading to when I said admitting. Excellent. Good. Everybody, any other comments about fleeing from Satan? We're to submit to God, and then he will flee from you. First of all, we call on him, and then he uh, He does the work, and the Satan flees from us. Now we see verse 8. We look at 1 Peter chapter 5 again. Uh, it, this is point D. Uh, point A was, uh, uh, if you're writing these things down, was that he's a created being. Point B, the biblical names. Point C was our attitude toward him. And now point D is the devil's attitude toward us. How does he think of you and how does, what does he want to do uh, to you? And scripture says very emphatically, uses the metaphor of a lion. Everybody knows what a lion is. Everybody knows he's the king of the beast. Everyone knows that when he roars, you're in trouble. And everyone knows that when he is ravenous and hungry, you are in harm's way. And you need to flee from him. So the same metaphor is used of Satan. It says he's our adversary. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That walk word walks is a continuous action verb. It means he continually walks. He continually stalks. He kneels in the bushes, if you'll let me use that metaphor. Lions are famous for their stalking of a prey and their hiding and their patience in waiting for prey, seeing the prey make a mistake, seeing the prey not being sober-minded, not being vigilant. And when you are not vigilant and sober-minded, the Satan who is out is going to ambush you like a hungry lion. So we see this this metaphor, the roaring lion, uh, describes his fierce determination and activity. He never stops pursuing you. Never. The word is insidious. He's always pursuing you. He is patient. And he is cunning. He has seen your history over the years. He's seen the history of man over the years. He knows what trips men up. And he uses the same methodology for the last 6,000 years, right? So he's not omniscient, but he's experienced, and he knows what works, and he is always after us. Uh, it just reminds me of Proverbs 7. This analogy of a man who falls into an adulterous relationship, he's standing out the window and he's looking and he sees a woman. That's a picture of any sin, specifically adultery. But, but look, this is what it means that Satan is a roaring lion. He is always active. He never takes a break. Uh, this is this verse. Uh, 
Verse 12, at times, this is a metaphor of the adulterous woman. This symbolizes Satan's methodology. Verse 12, at times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. That is what Satan does, lurking at every corner. He will catch you in your weakness, and he will tempt you. And he uses your flesh, he uses the world system, and he uses your pride against you, and that's how he's after you. He doesn't need to be specifically, uh, particularly, he's got his own minions, and he's got his system, and he's got your own weaknesses of your flesh. So he's a roaring lion. Uh, he is ravenously hunger, and he is intent on capturing you. It's as if his life dependence on, is dependent on it, and that's how he goes about his business. He is, the, the roaring of the lion asserts his true character. He may appear as an angel of light, and his false prophets appear as angels of light, but the true intent of his heart is that he's ravenous and he's a vicious beast. He wants to destroy you. Uh, and that word seeking, roaring the lion, uh, the word seeking is in the active present tense. Uh, it means he's persistent. Uh, he's looking for you. Uh, the word devour, that's uh, a sick word. He wants to swallow you up and drink you down. It's the word Jonah used. Uh, God used in Jonah 117 where God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. And so Satan is a roaring lion. He wants to devour you. I like what one guy said. He seeks your total destruction of the victim. Satan's aim is not to harass you or injure you. His true desire is to kill his victims by what? Destroying their faith. Whatever human agent Satan may employ, Peter recognized Satan is the real instigator. So he's a roaring lion. He is seeking to devour you. So everybody understands Satan. Make no mistake about it. This is his uh, uh, method of apparandi. This is the way he goes to the market. This is his desire, and it's to destroy you. He truly is a ravenous beast. And uh, so we need to do this. So we got the devil's attitude toward us. And now point B, E is our attitude toward him. What are we to do? And we've got this, da, 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 our calling, our attitude toward him. It says resist him steadfast in the faith. The word resist. Fantastic word. It's a military word. It's a metaphor. It's a definitive act that we need to do. We need to take a, a solid stand in opposition against him. We need to have made a decision and choice in our mind and our heart before the instigation comes, before he starts stalking us and praying towards us, uh, P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y, uh, and we need to, to resist him. This is warfare. It is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of spiritual significance that I cannot emphasize enough. 
We need to resist him. Okay. We need to, Paul says we need to stand against him. So back to, to Ephesians six. Everybody's familiar with this, uh, this, uh, paragraph. Uh, but it says three times. This is what it means to resist. It means to stand. It doesn't mean to turn and run. Doesn't mean to flee. But as Melanie said, as we submit to Christ, we're then able to stand against him. We stand and face him. We don't turn our back to him. So we uh, look at 6, uh, 11, 13, and 14 of Ephesians 6. It tells us, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, it says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and done all to stand. Military connotation. Uh, face your enemy, be aware of him, and stand against him. Verse 14, stand Gird yourselves with the breast, with the waist, gird your waist with the belt of truth. And so we are to resist him. We're to stand against him. Uh, we're not told to flee from him. As I said, that would be futile, but we're told to flee from evil. So as we, one of the ways we stand against the devil and we resist the devil is that we Flee from evil. Does everybody make sense? We're not fleeing from the devil specifically. We're submitting to God and, and submitting to God and being humble before God is being obedient to God, dependent upon God. And so one of those, one of the things that defines what that means is that we are to flee from evil. Uh, just some examples. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 18. As we stand against the devil, we are to flee from evil because he's the instigator of it. So we see these examples in the scripture. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. Do what Joseph did. When Potiphar's wife wanted him, he left his sweater and took off and left it in her hands. He fled from her. He didn't mull it over in his mind. He had already made a choice that he is going to be obedient to God. He didn't think about it. He didn't flirt with her. He didn't take it a little further. He didn't take fire in his bosom and say, well, I can handle this. He fled. Okay. That's what it literally means. Flee from sexual immorality. And it tells us why there in the scripture. Look at, uh, uh, look at the 1014 of first Corinthians. 1014. Scripture says, flee from idolatry, idolatry, anything that usurps God's uh, prominence in your life, anything that would, 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 that you would give in allegiance uh, to someone else other than God is what idolatry is. So if it's sports, if it's entertainment, if it's hunting, if it's money, if it's stuff, if it's things, if it's position, if it's authority, if it's uh, to be seen well of by men, we're to flee from that in Scripture. You just go ahead and go. Yes, ma'am. Hello? I didn't hear you. If you want to, if you want to speak, feel free. Uh, uh, but First Timothy six eleven, another example of fleeing from evil. First Timothy, uh, 
6.11, Apostle Paul says this. It says, O man of God, talking about Pastor Timothy, flee these things. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the first verses that precede it. He's fleeing from the love of money. He's fleeing from... Uh, uh, disputes and arguments and envies and rivalries and evil suspicions. He's, he's talking about fleeing from evil men and corrupt minded men. So those are some of the things that we need to flee. And then as he closes out his life, I think it's very important we understand one of the things on, on Paul's heart as he was about to depart and be with Christ. One of the last things he says, is Second Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord. So we're to put off the old and put on the new. We're to flee the youthful lusts and everything that involves, and we're to put on the righteousness, and we're to put on uh, the holiness of God. And so uh, that's what it means to flee evil, resist Satan by fleeing evil. Uh, any comments for that one? And then the uh, the other part of this verse is not just uh, is not just uh, resisting. There's a particular way in which we do it, and this is the key to victory. And it's not in us. It says, "Resist him steadfast in the faith." Uh, the condition for victory is the faith of Christ. The word steadfast means to be firm, needs to be rock solid, it needs to be unyielding like granted, granted, it needs to be uncompromising. Uh, in the faith is personal confidence in the work of Christ. Uh, I love what uh, Hebert says. If, if you don't get anything out of what I said, when it says steadfast in the faith, it means victory is not assured by personal tenacity, which we cling to in our personal beliefs. It's not you. It's not your clinging to what you believe. Victory lies in adhering to the work of Christ on the cross where he has already defeated the devil. In Christ, Satan is now a defeated foe. Victory over Satan lies in faith because faith unites us to Christ. The victor. By faith, the devil is driven away like a lion is driven away by fire. A counterfeit gospel will not procure victory. So if you think it's, it's you plus Christ, it's you plus works, uh, it's your lifestyle, it, you're measured by your holiness, that's the false gospel. But when it's complete trust in Christ, complete reliance on his work, Total dependence and humility in him, submission to him. That's where the victory is accomplished, not by our own efforts. But we are participants, right? He doesn't zap us. We have to, uh, Romans 6, we have to not yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness. We aren't to uh, take fire in our bosom because we're going to be burned. We are not to yield our members, our thoughts, our minds, our hands, our actions. Uh, we're not to tempt uh, evil by participating in it. We're not to sit and stand in the seat of the court, but we're to flee, right? And that's, Don? Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say, uh, one of my Bible teachers used to say, um, you know, 
the only victory that Satan can have in our lives is not that he can take us, pluck us from the Lord's hand, but that he causes us to be ineffective for Christ, for for his kingdom, you know. So uh, it, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not that his our works save us, but it's that they are a testimony of our faith in him. Excellent. You know. Folks don't save us, they are a testament to our faith. And that's part of what it means. Resist him and we do it steadfast in the faith. So uh that is the uh our attitude towards Satan. Uh that is the victory over Satan. Now I want to finish on a very positive note, which is what the book of First Peter is all about. Uh and we see this started and it's the encouragement to the believers. Uh, we see it in verse 9, uh, the second part. So after he tells us to resist, after he tells us to resist steadfast in the faith, connecting us to Christ and the victory he has won, then he encourages. Look what he says. First thing he says is to encourage us, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Uh, the same sufferings means similar uh, it's not restricted to us. It is what it it draw it brings us together in Christian solidarity. We're a band of brothers. The suffering IDs us as believers, and so we all go through similar sufferings. Uh, some sufferings are harder than others. Some sufferings last longer than others, but they are sufferings, and they are experienced by every believer throughout the whole world. It reminds me of the verse, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses as we look back and as we advance forward as soldiers, we are not alone. We are in solidarity with each other. We're all tempted. We are all in this great struggle against our enemy. But the encouraging is uh, that it's experienced by everybody in the world. And the word experience, let me read this. I just can't let you go with this one out this one. These same sufferings that are experienced. Uh, the sufferings accomplish a divinely appointed purpose. When the divinely intended purpose or goal is realized, the sufferings will end. The sufferings are going to continue until the goal is realized. The Christian awaits not the end of suffering, but its goal. And what is the goal of all suffering? Conforming to Christ, Christ-likeness, progressive sanctification, we should think of our progressive, the next step that we should be logically going to should be a, a step. It shouldn't be a giant leap. The next step is glorification. As Christ brings us and he processes us in sanctification, the next step in the final goal of finished work is our glorification. When we are perfect in our bodies, we have new flesh, resurrected bodies in the presence of God, Sabbath day of rest has finally happened. We're in God's presence. That's the goal of everything we go through. Okay? That should encourage you. That's the good. The suffering is going to continue until the goal is accomplished. We don't look forward to the suffering. 
but we look forward to the goal of the finish of suffering, and that is hallelujah, right? That is a hallelujah. That's really good. You think about that, Colin, the next time you have a uh, have a pain. The goal of this is for your final glorified body. When you That's right. That new body. And she's That's here. right. That's good. I'm glad words encouraged you today. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The suffering is divinely permitted in the lives of God's children. It's purposeful, and we look forward to the ultimate outcome. And that's what it is. And that's the encouragement to all of us that we're all in this together. We're in solidarity with each other. We're brothers with Christ. And as he suffered, he learned obedience through the suffering. As he was made perfect through the sufferings, uh, as he uh, represents us and he's a substitute for us, so we, his servants, we're going to go through the same struggles as we Depend on God, right? Amen. And it doesn't hurt that we have our brothers and sisters in Christ who love us to lift us up and to encourage us. We encourage each other. Yes, you encourage us, and you hope we encourage you. Yes, you know sir. you do. You all do. I was just saying, and that explanation from that gentleman kind of ties into James 1. Count it all joy. Because it kind of makes sense when you look at it from that perspective yep. why we should count it yep. And the vow said it, it doves tails with the with the James one, count it all joy when you fall into various tribulations because he's working character and perseverance. He's developing brother kindness and he's developing love. And he is Terry's been preaching, he's transforming our minds and he's conforming us to the image of Christ so that we will act worshipful and that is God's will for our lives. Okay? That's what it all is. Uh, and then as he lastly, as he finishes this up, and uh, this is good stuff, so don't get fatigued by these good news. Here's another one. <laughs> so we, uh, we, we, we experience the brotherhood of Christ. Now look at verse 10. I want you to chew on this for a while. Chew on that this week. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The God of all grace, he's the giver of all grace, common grace, special grace, and he has called us. He has, with an irresistible call and an effectual call, he has foreknew us and he's predestined us, and he has declared us righteous, justified us. He's going to glorify us. This is all his work. And so we've been summoned by the king in this irresistible call to participate in his eternal glory. Yummy, yummy, huh? Yummy, yummy, yummy. (laughs) So uh, that is uh, the God of all grace who's called us. He's begun the work. He's going to finish the work. And the finished work is eternal, participating in his glory. And that's going to repeat what he said in 1-7 as he sums this up. Uh, he says in 1-7 uh, that uh, the genuineness of your faith is much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revealing of Jesus Christ. He says it in verse 11. He says, uh, again, he says, 
but to us they're ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angel desire to look into. Talking about the redemption of our souls and our salvation, on and on and on. The point of it all is to process us to become able to participate in the eternal glory of Christ. In the ages to come, Scripture says in Ephesians 2, 7, he's going to show us the riches of Christ in eternity. And we're going to continuing to learn. Uh, so he says he calls us into eternal glory. If you'll go back to where we were, First Peter 5, 10, okay, by may the God of all grace called us in, by Christ Jesus, of course, after you have suffered, that speaks to the duration and the degree uh, uh, our suffering will be limited. We will not be tempted above which we are able to handle because with the temptation, Christ is going to provide a means of escape, Scripture says. Uh, but, uh, it puts everything in perspective, the phrase, after you've suffered a while. Uh, there's a limit to it. There's a purpose to us, as we've said. And this focuses on the duration because it's opposed to eternity. This short time that we're suffering for a while, when we think about it in terms of eternity, it's a vapor. It's just passing away. Paul said, I reckon that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to what? The glories which we're going to see. So Peter encourages at the end, the suffering is purposeful, teaches obedience. But put it in perspective, brothers, everybody's suffering. There's a purpose in it. But the, but understand when compared to eternity and glory, it's nada. It's vanished for nothing. That's right. Put a bounce in my step today. Okay. So, And now I'm not done. He's not done. Now the last four verbs. Look at this is beautiful. I'll let you go. Come on. Come on. After you've suffered, perfect four verbs on the board. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Promises, imperative command. These are these are promises, indicative promises. Just like it says, uh, sin will not have dominion over you. That's an indicative promise from uh, Romans 6.14. These are indicative promises. He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Guarantees. The word perfect you, he's going to restore you. He's going to make whole by fitting together. He's going to repair all the damage that sin and suffering have worked in your life. He's going to perfect you. He's going to fix everything. Okay, he's going to establish you. He's going to make you strong. He's going to make you firm and he's going to support you so that you will not totter. Your promises, he's going to perfect you. And then how he perfects you is he supports you so that you don't totter. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. The rains came, the winds blew, and the floods descended, and the house didn't fall because it was founded on a rock. Paul said there's no other foundation that can be laid that's already been laid, Jesus Christ. So 
He's going to support us in the foundation. The word strengthen you. He's going to give you the strength to resist the devil and settle you is he's going to put you on the firm foundation. So what that literally means, he's settled is the foundation upon which you stand, and that's Christ. So he sums it all up by verse 14. The true grace is of God is how you stand. He says that is a... Uh, an epilogue. The true grace in which all of us stand is the grace of God. Peter understood that autobiographically. Peter fell many times. Peter suffered. Peter is going to be crucified up down, upside down. Peter denied Christ. But through it all, he learned obedience and dependence on him through the trials, and he learned humility in the sufferings. And he saw a perspective that we're to see that is for God's glory, and one day he's going to reveal himself, and we're going to be able to comprehend it. It's not going to be through a glass darkly anymore, but we're going to see him face to face, and we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he really is. Whoo! That don't light your fire, your wood's wet, as someone used to say in the cathedrals. So uh, that's how this book ends. We stand by the grace of God. And uh, any comments or questions about this fantastic book? And I always get depressed when I finish a book. So uh, to keep from being depressed, we'll start another one next week, and we'll start Second Peter. And if you want to know about false prophets, and deceivers and their method operate, uh, their method of work. We're going to look at them. Okay. So, uh, turn on TBN this week to, to, to get prepared for false prophets. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> so that's what we'll do this next week. Okay, guys. Everybody have a blessed day. Let me pray first, Carolyn, before we leave. I'm not going anywhere yet. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for your plan of salvation. Thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you for the sufferings. We count them all joy, not through the sufferings or in the sufferings, but we, we, we rejoice because the goal and the finished result of the suffering is uh, our glorified bodies and our uh, being in, in heaven and glory with you forever. Thank you for hope. Give us strength. Help us to resist the devil, to be steadfast in your faith. Help us to flee from evil. Help us to have a proper perspective of who Satan is, to understand he's, he's out to do one thing, and that's to destroy our souls. We thank you that you're going to preserve us from him, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that includes Satan. We thank you that we are held in the palm of your hand, that you've begun the work and you'll finish the work. And thank you that we have strong consolation in who you are and what you've said. And may that encourage us as we see the days approaching. Help us to be faithful, sober, and self-controlled to your glory. In these things we pray. Amen.